Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills, adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. A list of my guests' various pursuits and accolades could fill an hour all by themselves. He is a New York Times number one best-selling immersive nonfiction author and the brand-name collaborator for Celebrity Tell Alls, an award-winning journalist for print publications too numerous to mention, once the world's most celebrated pickup artist, a bona fide lifestyle guru, and as of last week, the host of the true crime podcast to live and die in L.A. Hello and welcome, Neil Strauss. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Thank you for coming by. When I started this show two years ago and you were on my uh, my wish list of people. I was no hoping. way. That's amazing. I have... Dreams do come true. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I Even... love the obstructed view of the Hollywood sign here. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, 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 moving, we're moving on up. Someday we might be able to see four or five letters of that <laughs> exactly. sign. Exactly. Would. I... Um, I carry a book of yours with me everywhere I go, and it's either going to be one the day that I read it, it's going to be very funny or very not funny. I um, packed a go bag right after Fukushima. Uh-huh. That was my takeaway right. from that. And they're like, "Well, you want a book because it might be terrifying, but you might just be really bored." And I had just gotten an advanced copy of your book, Emergency. Great. And I was like, "Oh my god, this might be practical." You know, or or I might just be like, "Oh, you thought you were really, really funny. Now everybody's dead, and you've got this Neil Strauss." Yeah, and here are all the things I should have done to prepare that I didn't. It's a good way to have like regret. It was that. that, that oh, is it more that kind of? I was thinking that maybe you know, there like, are a lot of there are a lot of things there too. There's really cool stuff like how to like how to uh, like turn a credit card into like a knife that uh-huh. like, can literally probably get anywhere. Like it can get past anywhere. It's a terrifying thing. But then there's all how to escape attack dogs. Like there's all kinds of cool like survival tips. Uh-huh. But a lot of it's like here's some amazing resources that I that I really highly recommend that you can go do. There are mm-hmm. the, these amazing survival skill courses. There's one skill. There's one course I took called Urban Escape and Evasion. The idea is like people think survivalism is surviving in the woods, right? How can I make a fire? How can I build shelter? But most people live in modern civilization. So these guys who teach you how to how to pick locks. How to hotwire cars, how to like, you know, escape from handcuffs, how to escape from flexi cuffs. It's like, it's like the stuff that we want to know in like high school that would have made us expelled. I feel like it would sort of, um, I, you know, when you're, you're obviously not working on that project anymore. So it comes, you know, it's becomes a back of mind thing, but it would right. sort of gamify reality for a while that yeah. you couldn't help but look at everything and figure out how you would be Jason Bourne. Yeah, it's total Jason Bourne. Remember the teacher said, like, you know, once he's like, you could, you could he like literally, he's like, once you learn lock picking, the, the world is your oyster. Uh-huh. You know, and really traveling around like, like lock picking is just a great skill because you get locked out of stuff sometimes, you know, or you forget the key to that. Uh, lock yeah. or something. Do you know who's great for that? Um, Nick Offerman. I have oh, really? a friend who found themselves in the sticky situation. Uh-huh. That's a man who's always got tools. Yeah. You can. Yeah. Ha- have you had to use any of that stuff since since oh, you the wrote the book? Yeah. Like, it, uh, like, I, I, like I, okay, I, had to use? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I, I can give you some the quick first examples that come to mind. Is yeah. One is, so the backstory is we live in a dangerous world. It's scary. It's, it's freaking scary, man, out there right now, right? It's scary. And the system will not 
protect you. As somebody who lived in Malibu during the fires just now, as someone who's been in disasters, the first thing that happens when a disaster is like the system takes care of itself. And if you're suffering, they literally tell you if you talk to emergency management, if there's a big emergency, you can call 911 all you want, but we're not coming. You're in the way. Right. You're like, oh, I thought you're supposed to protect me and save me. It's same with the podcast about missing people, too. You yes. learn the, the system. The system is designed to have you have faith in it, but it's also imperfect and doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If you have faith in it, don't have faith in it. We lose the structure that holds civilization together, but actually is super flawed and doesn't work. So they want to make you believe in it mm-hmm. while it doesn't work. for you. Well, the system can only do so much. Exactly. Now, yeah. so in, in the, the podcast, we may as well get into that. Wait, I feel like I was about to make a point. What's your uh, survival uh, emergency stuff that you've actually oh, no, had uh, to? Uh, oh, yeah, the ones that I have to do, yeah. But now, like, so I, one of the things I did is I became an EMT, and an EMT is a great crash course in emergency medicine. It's amazing. Yeah. And literally, if I'm driving past, and I, you see way too many car crashes in L.A., uh, I can stop there, I'll con- call 911, I'll, like, triage you know, and take care. There's so many times when someone's hurt or wounded or bleeding, you know, kid on a skateboard outside the house, you can literally take care of them while uh, authorities come. So really, like, it's the, it's the emergency management stuff. The lock picking, like, I used to tra- tra- take bolt cutters, travel with bolt cutters, because that's much faster than a lock pick. Uh-huh. And all the time, someone's like, you know, I live on the beach. They're like, my padlock rusted shut. You know, come over and snip that off. So really, like, picking locks, uh-huh. emergency medicine will really get you far. So you've done triage on the ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to know that you're out there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey. <laughs> so that does segue into your uh, new podcast. And I guess the idea is, right, the system won't help you or the system cannot pot. We do not employ a system that is equipped to handle the amount of uh, cases, in this case, missing person cases that exist. So you are effectively, it's not the system, maybe, maybe the system doesn't care about you, but even if the system did, there's thousands of people that go missing just in Los Angeles alone all the time. Right. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. It's funny when you read, read the bio, I realized, man, it's so all over the place, but I really just follow my curiosity. I don't have like a plan. Right. I get or that. Or a thing I do. I just like, this seems interesting. Why don't, like, it's fun to learn to fly gyrocopters and learn emergency management and pick locks and, you know, and do all this stuff. So, uh, so this this podcast that you're talking about that the uh, that kind of came about because so I live in Malibu. Two years ago, this is not what the podcast is about, but it's how it started. Someone went missing in my neighborhood. Uh, my then wife and I decided, okay, like no one's doing anything. What can we do to help? And like started trying to help the family, and consequently started realizing how much a citizen and a private person can do with these families, and. When the private investigator on that case had a new case, he's like, listen, can you, we need to spread the word on this. You write for Rolling Stone. Can you help us out here? It mean mean a lot to the family. And as I did, we figured out, we figured out basically who we thought did it. And this person like had changed their alibi three times. They were, uh, uh, they were kind of just acting very suspiciously and they weren't getting arrested. And uh, <laughs> how do you know that this person had changed their alibi? You have access to police files, or 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 no? You never have. I mean, the police is usually a locked vault. Yeah. But how you know they changed their uh, what they're saying three times is uh, when the person disappeared. They told one friend one thing. They told another friend something else. They told so you're, the, you're going around talking to friends, right? Right. Friends. You're going around. You're talking to everybody. You're getting access to as much data as you can. Text messages, WhatsApp messages, all those things. And really, you start off by looking for who's lying. Mm-hmm. Just like a good place to start for is like with is like who is lying. Yeah, uh, and then you start chasing that, and it got to the point where I'm literally like outside this person's like building where they're kind of hiding out in. The police aren't there. The private investigator chases person somewhere else, so they're out of town. 
and like it's on me to confront them. It was crazy. But back to what you're saying. So why am I there who's just a journalist and a writer and, you know, uh, and why am I there? Why is not the police not there? And the reason, and by the way, they're, they do their job. They're doing their job. They're not like, there's no scandal here. If you go, this is what's crazy and why I kind of got started getting involved in these cases, uh, for just to help the families and help raise rewards among my friends so they can offer rewards. But the reason I got involved really is if you go to the LAPD website, Here's what it says. It says if you if you have someone in your family or a loved one who goes missing, tons of people go missing every day. They'll probably come back. If they don't come back, you can come to us and we'll file a report. But just keep in mind, because so many people go missing, uh, it's best that you actually hire a private investigator. If you can't afford a private investigator, you can go to the Salvation Army. Oof. So they are basically saying on their website, we're not really going to do much. Yeah. We'll take a report for sure. If you really want to find this person, go hire somebody else. Well, that when you say Salvation Army, that suggests to me that a lot of a huge percentage of the people who go missing are people who essentially fall out the bottom of the system. Or what they're saying, no, no what we're saying is uh, what they're saying is if you can't afford a Salvation Army, here's a free service. Right. The police is not the free service you should be coming to. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is crazy. Which is crazy. It's and you feel the frustration of these families mm-hmm. who like just imagine like your child is missing. You know it's foul play. You even have a good idea who did it. Maybe even have a uh, a video of them in a physical fight a few days before, and the person's running around free, like the the biggest pain. I mean, a parent can go through. Exactly, and you are a parent, and I know that that informs this project. You can't, yeah. yeah. Right. The issue of abduction, obviously, becomes a lot closer to home once you have your own children. And you can imagine that everybody who's abducted or goes missing or is murdered or whatever is is was somebody's little kid and is someone's child. So we're talking in specifics. Let's talk about the oh, ballpark yeah, yeah, totally. so everyone knows what we're talking about. I know. So I know. We dove around it. Who yeah. is Adea Shabani? Yeah. So so this, so this, this kind of second case he called me about, Adea Shabani was a uh, 25-year-old. She moved from Macedonia, which I've learned from doing this podcast, that... That if uh, that uh, there's some dispute over the name Macedonia, so it's also called the former Yugoslavia Republic of Macedonia. I didn't there's, even know there every, was still a Macedonia. I knew there was yeah, yeah. once a Macedonia. Everything so everything's very political. I don't know if I can explain it well. I'm going to anger some people probably, uh-huh, but gotcha. but I guess but it's funny when you do these things, right? You put them out in the world, and maybe you re- I guess something makes everybody, you know, legitimately upset these days. Yes, um, but but I guess calling Macedonia Macedonia is one of those things because Greek. There's a there's a there's a dispute with with greece on that that's, it's like a whole palestine very, very israel kind of thing and all that makes me sad about it is that people and I'm, I'm fucking gonna get so many like angry whatevers but all that makes me upset about it is that people care that fucking much about a word <laughs> you know yeah yeah it's like we're so willing to fight everybody all the time over fucking everything and maybe i'm not sad about using the wrong word as much as i am that there are two people with two different viewpoints that live very close to each other that are angry at each other that's not good for the world Right, and I know nothing about what I'm talking about. Just FYI, all I know is I'm getting a lot of emails from people who are angry that I use the word mess. Well, I think as a blanket rule, what I would like to see more of in society is if you could differentiate between the people who are making mistakes in your opinion, but you're pretty sure have honestly good intentions, right. and the people who have without a doubt unmistakably bad intentions, maybe go easier on the people who, if if someone uses a, a wrong, um, you know, ha- isn't quite up to snuff on the way they're supposed to talk about. Uh, a person who's gender fluid or something like that. If you know their heart is in the right place, maybe use the kid gloves on that person and save the vitriol for the evil people. 
Right. Well, well, everybody's evil now. But but the, but the bigger <laughs> point that what I'm really saying is not about me. I don't care. You can. Yeah. I, it's cool. They educate me. I want to know. I'm educated because of those things. So I'm yes. grateful for that. But what I'm sad about is that there's two countries that have these two opposite viewpoints that they're very upset about. And I feel like when na- when neighbors are angry at each other as a country, for whatever that reason is, I don't know the whole story. Mm-hmm. It just made me sad that like you can't use this name. This is this name, and I just feel like. We're, you know, when we get very tribal mm-hmm. and start fighting over differences, yeah. like that just leads to atrocities. It comes out of just, yeah. I mean, the whole, it comes out, that comes from the emergency perspective. When I wrote emergency, right, you read about Rwanda, places where they're genocides. I'm getting so fucking serious. Let's, let's tell you, but you read about those places and you're like, oh, a population can be whipped up yeah. to the degree that they will kill other pe- people in the population if you the teachers kill their own students doctors kill their own patients in rwanda or or if you go to uh you know whatever the holocaust all these things and you're like we say never again and these genocides keep happening mm-hmm. and then you look at all the hatred all all these places in the world right now including america and you're like how can we like sort of realize we all want the same thing we all want to be safe we all want to be uh free we all want um uh you know uh you know opportunity we all want these things just we conflict over the strategies or these other things well and unfortunately there are some people at the top who just benefit from playing chess with thousands of of human lives and maybe it suits their benefits and maybe it even suits their ideology but the people who are actually the ones doing the the suffering and the dying probably okay last night i was up till 1am i'm actually very very tired and scattered this (laughs) morning i have a seven-month-old baby and oh no way okay we got to talk about that and i was up till 1am because um i was reading the good war by studs turkle yeah and the reason why he wrote that is because that was in the early 80s it had been roughly 40 years since world war ii and he felt like the memory of what world war ii had actually been was fading from the public consciousness and was being replaced by what the powers that be wanted us to remember it as and now i'm reading that book roughly 40 years after it was written and the same thing is certainly i'm sure that made a big imprint on the culture at the time it's happened all over again that is precisely what all of the you read a book like that and you come away feeling so much better about Americans and so much worse about America. Right. Because per soldier after soldier after soldier is saying, we found out about the concentration camps and we felt so badly. And then look at what we did to Japan. I was in Japan. I was led to believe that these were inhuman monsters and I'm being welcomed into their house for tea and it's hitting me. They are exactly the same as me. My God, how did we let ourselves get wrapped up in this? So many World War II soldiers who were like, I told my kid, don't go to Vietnam. I don't feel like that. I feel like that story got lost by the time Tom Brokaw was writing books. Right. So, and, and, and let's extend that idea. I think it's such an important idea. It's not even American Americans. It's individuals are going to have traveled in North Korea. I've traveled in, in Iran. I've traveled in all these places. And you meet one-on-one and every, everybody's freaking great. Mm-hmm. Everybody's the same. Great. Even a strong, strong, different, you know. Yeah. And then, but it's these like, but it's the, the systems, you know, that keep them kind of contained for the benefit of the system. Uh, whatever that's whether it's a political or a corporate corporation system, these systems are so flawed and so go to go to go back to what you said earlier, which is, you know, it's not this person's evil, that person's evil. There's a sort of a system that perpetrates and and rewards, uh, you know, those things and profits off and all those things. Like, you know, I think just look at the the media, right? It's like it's takedown culture mm-hmm. is so good for clicks. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it's amazing when you see that the there are there's this proliferation of news outlets and news organizations and TV channels and what have you. And it doesn't seem like it's a profitable business business model for anybody to be in the middle. Yeah. 
It's just, are you going to be the side that's angry at, you know, are you going to be Tweedledee angry at Tweedledum or vice versa? And you simply can't go wrong. And I guarantee you, if you look on the back end of, you know, foxnews.com or Huffington Post, they do have some articles that are like, hey, here's what's going on with uh, the corn crop this year. Right. And then look at Donald Trump lashes out at blah, blah, blah. And look at the clicks. You'd be a fool to not be if you're you know you're in business to make money they they virtually have no choice but to do this awful disservice to the republic right. that they're doing yeah we are in the most toxic yet invigorating news cycle yeah i mean there there has ever been there there has ever been the news has never been it's like it's sort of like everybody is addicted to it mm-hmm. something is going down every day you know if you it's shocking it's outrageous it hits all the you know neur- neurotransmitters that you know all the do- you get the dopamine rush you yeah. get all these things however they've 100% if I can do like, if there's one thing you got on the scattered, you know, <laughs> show we're doing right now. Yeah. If I can do you one favor, go to your phone and turn off your alerts for the news. Mm-hmm. If you want a happier life, you just go to your phone, turn off as many alerts as you can, all those notifications that pop up on your Android or iPhone ho- home screen. But higher levels of reading the news is correlated with higher levels of depression. As is high levels of, of visiting your social media. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's funny. Facebook then it's fuck right. So, so, the, so the research got out about like how visiting social media uh, correlates with higher levels of depression. And Facebook <laughs> did their own study. This is why I love these monsters. They did their own study where it said actually, if you engage on it, then that takes away that effect, and you become happier by engaging more. So they like totally like twisted the research to be like, oh no, no, you got to engage. You can't just read. You got to use our platform more. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to use it more when you're using it more. Right. I know it's crazy. I mean, here's what. I mean, what really kills me is like being of the age, remembering the internet first happening, right? When it first, like the internet's like coming mm-hmm. out at the thing. I yeah. was like, you know, and, and everybody's saying, uh, this is, this is, it's freedom of information, right? This is it. Information wants to be free. That was the whole rhetoric, right? Everything's out there. Uh, we're free from these systems. And now it's become like a bigger, you know, it's become a bigger trap. It's a and quagmire. Th- yeah. And the new thing is, no, people can't be trusted with information. We need to, you know, we need to give them the right information. Yeah, well, the fallacy of the assumption was that the truth would out, that if, if all information is free, the, the truth would be the cream in this analogy that is bound to rise to the top. That was the underlying assumption of all of this, and clearly that is that is and probably never will be the case. But the fallacy is not that people can't be trusted with the information. The fallacy is that we know the truth and people don't. What do you mean by that? The fallacy here. Here's the deal. I, I love, by the way, the world right now is so freaking fascinating. I know. And like, and I'm, I really, I spent a lot of time with people on the far left. I spent a lot of time with people on the far right, from you know, from the most famous hated people, the most from the most hated people in the world on Twitter, who've been banned, to you know, social justice professors. Uh, and because I, I really, I, I love just understanding what's happening right now. Are you doing a book on that? Uh, I probably will. Yeah, <laughs> I, pro- yeah. I probably will. Somebody really, as much as it's been yeah. talked about, it has not been definitively chronicled. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, wait, what, what were we talking about? <laughs> Sorry, I was, about to, I, was setting, I was warming us up for some ideas about this. So thing. you are talking to people and uh, the truth, the Oh, the truth, oh, no, yeah, but, yeah. But, the, but, the, but the fallacy, the fallacy is, so, but the reason why, you know, we talk about elitism, people hate, you know, elite, uh, you know, elitism or liberalism, when people talk about that, what they really mean is, we know but you're too stupid to figure it out for yourself. So we'll tell you what you can do and access because you're too dumb because you voted for Donald Trump, right? So, and that perpetuates the system that votes for Donald Trump because they feel like everybody's condescending to them. Oh uh, yeah, uh, y- y- yeah. So so look at the anti. Mm-hmm. Look at the so the second fallacy mm-hmm. 
is, but I want to hear your, your counter argument. The second fallacy <laughs> is that that there is any fucking truth. There's very little that's true. Most of it's a social construct, right? Or, uh, or I mean, there's a scientific proposition that's like anything that science has proven will be, you know, disproven, and you know, any research study will be disproven in five or six or seven years. Like, right. There's very few that's truth. There are these socially constructed ideas that are are, are popular. These studies that gain prominence over other studies. Yeah. So, okay, so the tr- the truth thing is that okay. Here's a good example. Let's just say we're arguing now, apparently, about the tax rate, even though not a damn person who's going to comment on it on Facebook today actually okay, understands. Let's argue about vaccinations because that gets people heated. So okay, let's talk about they just banned saying anti anti vax stuff. On but a lot but of real things. quick to the Go point ahead. thing. Let me say about about yeah, okay. Maybe maybe our culture would be best served with a 20% flat tax whereby everybody would keep all their money and it would move around and it would trickle down. Maybe, right. maybe, right. maybe society would be best served by a 75% uh, rate where, for billionaires okay. where we yeah, had a yeah. strong okay. social, social net. There is a truth there, but the only way we can actually find out the truth would be to commit hard to one or the other for 10 to 20 years and see what happened. And even then, there would be so many other extenuating circumstances that no matter what happened could be parsed to support or take down the result of what had happened in reality. So there is truth, but it is too big and too complicated and drawn out for us as a, a voting populace to handle. I'm going to argue. Okay. I'm going to argue that, that there is no truth of one being better or not, because it depends on what metrics you're judging it on. Each one is flawed. Mm-hmm. Each one has advantages and disadvantages. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But and what, how you measure what, uh, that, right? One is probably objectively better for the the a greater amount of people to a greater extent, whether or not you could ever measure which one but of those how, it how, was. And how do you measure? Like, I'll give you an example. But there, it is true I, whether or not you can measure it. <laughs> and who know, And who knows this? And also, what, what metrics are you measuring and by what t- yeah, yeah. time frame? I love, I did a piece on Rolling Stone for Elon Musk. I spent a lot of time with him. Uh-huh. If you come up with any research, who really, he, what makes Elon Musk brilliant is he boils everything down to first principles. What do I know is absolutely true, which is really just the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. What, and outside of that, everything's up for grabs. So if you say like, oh, you know, unemployment is up, he's like, well, more people are going to grad school. That might be why it's up, right? Because more people are going to grad school. Unemployment down might mean less people are in grad school. How do they measure these things? So the fact is like, you know, most of these truths we're arguing about, we don't have the information to tell whether this is correct or not. Even if we do, mm-hmm. there's a million other variables and questions. So is a 20% rate or the 75% thing for the higher objectively good or bad? And for more people to hand out, it's, I, I would kind of argue that there may not be a truth there. Probably the real truth is like taxation is like it's going to be flawed and which mm-hmm. flaws can we live with and which ones can't we? Yeah, that's certainly true. I guess what I'm saying is there is a truth that may be not be able to be measured, which in effectively adds or, up or, to not being or any is truth. The, is there an arrogance? Is there an mm-hmm. arrogance in believing that there's a truth? Uh, in this, and that's why like the left has one truth and the right has another truth. Yeah. And it's our truth versus your truth. And mm-hmm. if you believe that you're an idiot, yeah. you believe that you're evil. And now guess what? We have the genocide we talked about in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could go on. <laughs> yeah, I no, could it's go fun. on. It's so fun. No, it's fun. It's fun to talk about. Yeah. These are important conversations uh-huh. uh, to have because we're in a place where we're restru- We're rebuilding our society right now. Yes, we are. There's, there's a, there's, our society is being rebuilt because nobody trusts the system, left or right. Nobody trusts the system. Yeah. Right. It's 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 corrupt. Uh, you know, there's if you, issues around privilege. There's issues around so many things. The system is messed up. But the real question that you're asking here is. Would this new system be any better? Like, are we really just going to create something with new flaws? Like, mm-hmm. will will any system ever freaking work? But it's a it's a fascinating time in the culture, and it, uh-huh. it's a cool discussion to have. I don't think it's entirely possible that a democracy can't function with 
for example, 300 million people. Right. There might be democracy. Democracy might be the best system for, a, you know, a city or something right. like that, where, you know, I am essentially a native New Yorker at this point where when a law is changed, everybody sees the effect of it. It ripples through everyone's lives and everyone is in a position to comment on. Yes, that's better. That's worse. If we change a law that affects Southern California I don't know how much people in North Dakota are prepared to say that was good or bad acting on anything other than what Sean Hannity tells them and prejudice and vice versa. The exact same thing is true. It's, it might just be we're too big as a, of a landmass and a population to work. But then yeah. again, what do you replace it with? Yeah, and, and guess what? Things can always be better, mm-hmm. right? Things can always yeah. be better. And then, and then my, part of me also thinks like, hey, if you travel to India and you travel to places where they're literally like just people dying and starving in the streets, like can we just like maybe just let's get everybody fed. Let's get everybody access to, mm-hmm. you know, health services or even people in America. You know, it's like there, there's so much, there's so much. Yeah. I mean, there, that's the real big question to ask. Like, fuck, does any system work and who does that system work for? Yes. And who doesn't it work for, right? Yes. Yeah, cool. But yeah, by the way, great documentary to watch on Netflix is The Act of Killing. If you really want to get darker than this podcast, have you uh-huh. ever seen it? No. It's, an, it's fucking amazing. It's I about, got a problem with documentaries. Oh, really? What's, what's your, they're, they're not true. <laughs> what's, what's your problem with documentaries? Well, yeah, everybody who watches a documentary comes away thinking that they know something when mm. they're, I mean, I don't know if propaganda is the exact word, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. It's, 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 it's impossible to tell a story in, in a compelling way with images and video for 90 odd minutes and not have a hard point of view that you have to omit so much. Oh, truth is like a big thing for you. This truth issue. Uh, uh, I, I guess so. Well, is, is I think doc- a bigger issue for right. me is everybody thinking like everybody. Act, I I am pretty proud of being humble enough to know what I don't know. Right. And I'm angry at everybody who knows everything nowadays because, for example, they saw a documentary right. on Netflix. Right. Got it. Got it's it. a great starting point for being introduced to a subject. Go and do some homework right. after that. By the way, Apollo Eleven, which you should see on IMAX while you can. Uh huh doesn't it is is probably a documentary that doesn't it i think you should watch it oh that's it's, different it's that i would go to yeah it's yeah. pretty amazing but but uh, but okay i got a serious question for you and i know yeah. we got to wrap up uh, uh-huh. so the serious question is this <laughs> growing up and let's say you're 10 11 12 and i'll tell you why i'm asking this question three words that describe your dad as you experienced him at your young age oh okay um uh stable uh-huh. uh Loving, uh, normal. Okay, and three words from mom. Um, loving, slightly less stable. Uh-huh. Uh, involved. Okay, yeah. So, so uh-huh. my my get my here's my thought. Yeah. So when someone has a when someone has a really strong point of view about something that really doesn't totally like the documentary argument is a personal quirky thing of yours. No, it's not. It's objectively true. <laughs> You're like a documentarian now. This is objectively true uh-huh. that documentarians are documents are documentary. A docu. First of all, we'll get back to that in a second. Here's what I'm saying. I have an idea for making a documentary about documentaries. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, because you have this. You, let's say you're hot around this. You're hot around this issue. You're, I you got guess. some heat around this issue. I'm fired up about everything. Okay. I slept like three hours last okay, night. Okay, listen. Uh, my, what I make up is that there was someone in your life who pretended to know or acted like they knew when they didn't know that you had a power struggle with. And this has been projected onto documentaries. Mm-mm. No, I wouldn't say that. Okay, so here's the deal. Most people who watch documentaries know a documentary is just a freaking somebody's point of view 
Right? I disagree. I disagree strongly with that. They think this is actually documenting that, and then they I get. Think, but what's mm-hmm. the difference between reading a, a BuzzFeed article or what's the difference between reading a New York Times article? Doesn't anyone who consumes any statistically, by the way, mm-hmm. people when they receive information forget what they received it from, so they can read it in the most credible or uncredible source. Whether it's so, yeah. Oh Jesus. Whether it's a documentary or like whatever mm-hmm. uh, Infowars or whatever it is, um, and then they can they'll forget the source of it and they'll repeat it as true. But I mean, that's just a, that's more about human nature, yeah. Than documentaries, they're always getting information and then becoming self-appointed experts. That's more of a certain arrogance. I don't think it's the documentary that's arrogance. The documentary is I'm constructing a story I'm excited about. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't think there's anything in particular about. There's something about the nature of documentaries and the fact that it's a quirk. It's a quirk. <laughs> Netflix wants to have as much content as possible, and okay. it t- it's like it, it takes money and time and effort to make okay. movies, but they can crank out stand-up specials and documentaries on top of that. And you go, right. oh my god, there's like 50 new things. Right. And for some weird reason, excuse me, people are responding to documentaries. Documentaries have been around. Right. For forever, right. they're they've been hot for like five or ten years. I'm not exactly sure what it is that like got everybody really into documentaries, and it's that it's more to the point that I already made that people everybody thinks they know everything about everything when they know nothing about anything. Right, and documentaries because of their very nature tend because they're um it, it, we respond so I, okay another pet it's a very funny soap, soapbox like it's a funny this, is it a, yes <laughs> i don't know if you guys can like tweet my yeah let, let me know, know. let me if, know if, if this is like mm-hmm. if, the, if he's like if, is he speaking for the people right now no or, well, okay, yeah. obviously but, 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 the, but it's funny also that you're angry at documentaries uh-huh. like that to me versus versus uh what is it you know and it's also you interpret people is saying like if i watch a documentary on something and i start talking about whatever how this does that and i hear another point of view i'm like oh that's interesting i'll, I'll look into that that's what yeah. i do too i think most people who listen to this show uh would be watching the documentary and they're already starting to wikipedia as they go so cool of, so we like so we like documentaries only for listeners of this show everyone else should not we so like we documentaries a, if, people, should... if people know that they're the beginning not the end of your your quest for knowledge what i really dislike is, is like... when people take <laughs> okay. anecdotal situations and 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 think that they can understand okay, okay. somebody a, a somebody wearing a maga hat beat up so and so therefore i know something about millions of people or right. somebody in a maga hat beat up somebody else or right. oh, well now i know something about millions of other people oh no he made it up well now i know something about millions of other people yes. when people use anecdotal information to understand trends they always seem to find the thing that they want well now and documentaries okay. feed that <laughs> But, but the examples you just gave, like yeah. the coming to news kids and, and the Jesse Smollett thing, uh, yeah. like those are, that, I mean, so documentaries are independent of that. I think what it is, is what you're angry at is com- maybe it's confirmation bias, right? Because people only look for like reinforcing what they believe. Mm-hmm. It's just funny when people are like, everything Trump does is great or mm-hmm. everything Trump does is bad. Yeah. Right. I'm like, OK, well, maybe there's, there's probably a percentage here, or a little bit of wiggle room somewhere. Maybe it's 90, 10, maybe it's 10, 90, whatever it is. Yeah. But once you're there and people, everyone's just looking for confirmation of what they believe. There's a reason for that. It's called terror management theory. I'll explain in like two minutes if I can. I have time. You're the one who has to go. I know, I yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. So um, but but first of all, but, the, but I feel like you're I feel like you're scapegoating documentaries. <laughs> They're um, just they're just the example that but you it could brought be anything, in. But they're people, part of a larger so, issue. So, so so what you're really saying, Mike, is people should have no information. You're you're doing the elitist thing. I don't people, believe I am. You're, 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 yes, no. People should have no information in case they come to a conclusion that they become stubborn and arrogant about. No, that when people when people find no my no definitely not. My <laughs> argument is when people get a piece of information that they find very provocative, right. um, if it is going to radically change the way they feel about 
something, they should be humble enough to say, this tells me I need to learn more about the situation, not I now know what needs to be done because I read this one article on BuzzFeed or whatever. That's all. No, I'm a big fan of information. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, but you're, you're I think you're being Pollyanna-ish if you actually think that the body politic can like use information wisely. I don't think the events of the last few years suggest that that is actually the truth. But I would still like to believe that that is the truth because if that is not true, then where does that leave us? Or one could also argue because one doesn't know. But like what you're saying is the elitist argument. That's funny because I knew that like hit a, a button a little bit. I think, and again, I, I you know I, I can I can see both I can see both sides of it. But just but really just saying. People think that all this, that people are so dumb and the information needs to be controlled, but then treating them like that might lead to more anger and perpetuate what we don't want. I don't know. My thought is, mm-hmm. if you're trying to control, that never works out well. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not advocating for any sort of control. I'm right. just my, my thought is, I, I, work, I spend a lot of time, most of my time, I, I, don't, I don't fucking know nothing about politics. I shouldn't be talking about the shit same in the here, public forum, here, yeah, by yeah. the way. I just want to caveat this with like, everything I think may change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Same Everything here. is just a fun debate, and I'm just taking the other side sometimes because it's fun to challenge Mike's thinking and Jim to challenge mine. Likewise, yeah, right? And sure. we could literally be on either side of whatever. I don't even know what we're debating about. But the bigger point being, yeah. the, I, I just want to say, say, say I'm say, not entirely sure this qualifies as the conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, in fact, I didn't even. Uh, so, which means don't use any of this against us. But I mostly interview artists, uh-huh. uh, and I spend a lot of time with some of the most successful artists, producers. You know, in the world, because I write for Rolling Stone about music, not about politics um, or any of the stuff we're talking about, but it's so fascinating. So here's what the most successful artists say, right? They're like, if I create a, a song or, or, or an album, as soon as I let it go, it's done and people can appreciate, enjoy it, experience it however they want. Right. Some people, there are a few kind of dysfunctional, unhappy artists who feel like they need to be understood exactly. But most people think you but create But not everybody's thing. Billy Corgan. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing we agree on. No, just kidding. <laughs> so once you, once you, I think we actually agree on everything, but, yeah. one, one, but, and, but the idea is once you send out in the world, you can't control anymore and what happens happens and people find their own uses for it and it speaks to them they might have their confirmation bias that this speaks to my life or whatever it is and born, I think in, the the US, same... born in the usa is not what bruce wanted it to be right right right, right yeah. yeah yeah exactly and, and that's what it was for some people and that was whatever and i think the same thing is true as a documentary <laughs> we're still talking about this we have this fascinating crime to talk about but, i have like, but, th- I have like three pages of notes i, I know, haven't we touched did, you just had to ask one question <laughs> But this, but uh, which is they they create this thing that really expresses uh, something they're passionate about or shows a. I mean, I just watched the Mo- Mr. Rogers documentary. I don't know if that's. I mean, putting talk the Mr. the Mr. Rogers lies. documentary. All lies. All lies. <laughs> What's fascinating about that, Mr. Rogers it shows. Have you seen it? No, I, I would love uh, to. I would love to. I'm planning to this one. But what about people who have fuck opinions on Mr. Rogers? Fuck them if they watch this and don't do the research. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. I mean, it doesn't really matter what your opinion on Mr. Rogers is. Right. So you know? I love it. I love and if it. you want to close SeaWorld, be my guest. I don't really care. Right. But you'd be upset if people had a strong opinion on Mr. Rogers and further do the research. I can't imagine anybody having a strong opinion other than liking him, which well, that's where me. you're wrong. So here's the deal. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's fascinating about the Mr. Rogers documentary. And by the way, oh, is it a smear job? <laughs> no, no. But what what is it shows like just what a good person he was, mm-hmm. and like just genuine in his heart, and like really like spoke for people in a beautiful way. But then you know, and told you know you're special, you matter. All these insecurities people are walking around. You really try to let kids know you're special, like you matter, you're important. 
uh, uh, you're worth something. And then there was this big backlash where Mr. Rogers is creating entitled kids oh. who just believe they're special and they they owe everything. And the point being, there's always another yeah. point of view. Uh, and they're both. No, that's nonsense. That makes me angry. But we can't, <laughs> wait, we can't get do into the research. That. You didn't even do the research. You're just taking what I said without. <laughs> right. That yeah. you're you're you're, yes. you're, you're absolutely right. You got to watch it for yourself. That you got to do all the Mister Rogers research. Right. Uh, so two quick two quick points to make, please. One is this: if you read the book uh, Influence uh, by Cialdini, uh, he talks about. People make shortcuts to make decisions because they don't have time to do all the research of every piece of information. No one has the time to go in there. Of course. And I know from fact-checking books that it's a freaking rabbit hole. Yes. So, A, people don't have time to do the research. So, it is true. The propaganda can win Mm -hmm. if it's easy stuff. Yes. Second thing, terror management theory. This explains what it is. It's fascinating. Look it up. And the idea is this. People are going to die. It sucks having to die for most most of us. It sucks. And we live with that every day that... I'm only going to be here this long. So, and I'm probably bungling this theory too. So they engage what's called an immortality project. What will live beyond me might be my work, my civilization, my culture. Hey, if our civilization is gone, all your radio shows, all my books, all the work we've done is all gone. So we find something that we live for that's bigger than us that goes on forever. And we make that our identity. And when our identity is challenged, we start to get violent or angry, right? So if I'm right, the right has to win for me to survive. Or the left has to win, oh, or 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 this culture has to win, or this mm-hmm. religion has to win, and it's fascinating. It's a very short paper. It's interesting to read. It's not super technical. It's ter- terror management theory, or look it up. And so it explains that people, so people are t- grabbing these things to be right, uh, to hold on to something that lasts. That is interesting. I had never thought of it in those terms. And uh, that is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I have to let you go. Um, I'd love to do this again sometime when I actually have my wits about me. Um, Likewise. And uh, can you come back after the – so the podcast is 12 episodes. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about that and other things once it's wrapped up. Oh, wait. I I – yes. Once it's wrapped up, let's really dive into it because it's pretty insane. Okay. So uh, you're at – Neil Strauss and new episodes of To Live and Die in L.A. debut every Thursday. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Yeah, and I talk slower and I don't talk about politics. And really, it's a fast. The one thing I will will say about it, only because I'm excited about it because I'm working. I've been working on it on is like it's not like the other sort of things. It's it's in real time. In other words, the moment she went missing, the private investigator called me and you follow everything like from the inside, there's information we have before even the police have it. Like mm-hmm. you're really, it's it's a it, it's a sad it's it's really a, a sad and kind of powerful thing. But you actually start to see how these things unfold, like from moment to moment, from the beginning. It's not like oh, here's a cold case and we're interviewing these people. Here we're talking to like a, a mother who doesn't know where her own child is. The worst pain she can experience. Her her you're experiencing her friends. You're seeing what the police are doing, what the private investigator is doing, uh, the the leads that come in, the false leads as as this thing. And then just trying to figure out, uh, I guess there's so much I want to say when, when we're back, but it takes like some like shocking twists and turns. When it happens, it's not like we're telling the story of it. Yeah. You're literally getting the first phone call yeah. that anyone gets about what happened. Yeah, you're not, you're not a fly on the wall. You're an active participant. In yeah. This. Yeah. yeah, you're the room. Right. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> All right, well, everybody check it out. To Live and Die in L.A., debuting every Thursday. Thanks again, Neil Strauss. Yeah, thanks, Mike. More to come here on The Tully Show. Stick around. Coming up next, oh, I'll think of something. We are back on the Tully Show, and I have never meant that we more royal or metaphorically than I do right now. It is me here all by my lonesome. Thank you to Neil Strauss for coming by, by the way. Did you you all enjoy that conversation? I really enjoyed 
talking to Neil, but obviously there was lots of tangents on top of tangents on top of tangents. Might have been a little bit hard to to follow. Hit me up and actually let me know what you thought about that. If you didn't like it, feel free to leave him off the tags. I am uh, at Tully on Twitter, at Tullywood on Instagram. He's a really interesting guy. I, I assume everybody is at least somewhat familiar with his career. I had so many questions for him. I wanted to talk to him about like literally every book that he wrote. He has really interesting philosophies on parenting. Actually, there's a lot of things I wanted to talk to him about in regard to the podcast that he was here to promote. And uh, obviously, we ended up talking about everything at the same time and almost nothing that I planned to. And, um, you know, I he and I spoke after he took off, and hopefully he will come back at the end of the run of To Live and Die in Los Angeles, his new podcast, because uh, I want to talk to him about that and everything else that I want to talk to Neil Strauss about. I'm going to listen to the pod so I know what the hell I'm talking about when he does come back in here. And I encourage you to do the same. Hopefully Neil Strauss comes back by in a couple of months. So here's the deal. I have had three different guests that were supposed to come in for the Tully show this week fall through for three different um, unrelated reasons. So I find myself here. And also Neil Strauss was uh, was rain came down from his home, running a little bit late. We got cut a little bit short. I find myself with a little bit of time to kill and no guests, so I thought we could just talk, you and I, one-to-one. I came across this article that I find very, very interesting that I thought I could share with you. It's something from a website called mentalfloss.com. It is entitled 10 Psychological Experiments That Could Never Happen Today. You probably know essentially what I'm talking about here There's stuff that science would love to know, and psychologists have ways of trying to get an answer just ethically. We know that you can't do it because it essentially involves torturing the participants. It's a shame. The way that that we feel as a society about torture gets in the way of a lot of, no doubt, very valuable science. So um, the list is incredible. These are all things that actually happen. Something that I find really interesting about this, and it's funny— is that I think in almost every case, you pretty much could have predicted what was going to happen in the beginning without torturing people. And yet um, scientists being the unfeeling, sadistic, sociopathic fucks that they are said, fuck it, let's just make sure. So uh, example number one on the list is something called the Little Albert Experiment. And the name right off the bat, should tell you that we're talking about something incredibly evil. Little Albert was a small person, a nine-month-old person, to be specific. Albert, not his real name. They called him Albert B. because they wanted to conceal his identity. I guess they thought it would be worse people <laughs> for people to know later on what they had done to this little baby than uh, the just the ramifications of what they had done to the baby. So here's what they did. They had a nine, the kid's nine months old, and uh, I guess they found out, they determined that the kid was already really into animals, which I'm not sure how you can do that. I have an eight-month-old living in my house, as many of you know, and the only things that I know that she loves for sure are, well, she says mama, she says dada, she seems very fond of uh, milk yeah, bottles, formula, and she loves making dinosaur noises. I haven't seen definitive proof that she has any other interests or hobbies, but these doctors at Johns Hopkins in 1920 had decided that Albert B., if that is his real name, was really into animals. So they decided to 
fuck with that very normal, very heartwarming, charming inclination to uh, to love and want to cuddle little furry things. So here's what they did to Albert B. They brought in like a white lab rat and they brought it around and let him play with it. Let the baby play <laughs> with a rat until the baby became friends with the rat. Then every time they brought the rat in and gave it to the nine-month-old baby, they would clang metal on metal to make this horrific cacophony, which would scare the shit out of both the baby and the rat. And in doing so, all of a sudden they didn't have to even make the noise. This is a Pavlov thing. For the baby to be afraid of the rat that was once his best and perhaps only friend. Um, so the kid, it was permanent. The kid developed an aversion to uh, to animals, to cuddly animals. Congratulations, science. You proved that. They were interested in seeing what long-term effects that had on Albert B.'s psychology. Um, they were never able to find that out because the child died of an unrelated age, uh, unrelated illness at the age of six. So... Um, it, it, which is tragic, obviously, but did spare that kid a life of being terrified of every furry creature he encountered. Then we have number two on the famous psychological experiments that could never happen today, the Ash Conformity Experiments. This is pretty simple. Here's what they proved. If you put a bunch of people in a room and you have most of them be actors and they all stick to a story that they know to not be true – you can usually make people agree with shit that they must also know is not true because they want to conform to the group. In this case, they uh, I think they drew some lines on a page, some of which were the same lines, some of which were different, uh, same length rather, some of which were different. And all of the actors said that the ones which were different were the same. And would you believe 37 out of 50 people could easily uh, be coerced by groupthink into agreeing with them. They pretty much did the same thing with another experiment where they pumped a bunch of smoke into a room. And if somebody is alone in a room and smoke starts coming in under the door and the room fills up with smoke, one person, for the most part, will say, that ain't good. Let's do something about that smoke. But they they demonstrated scientifically that if you if you have enough other people around who don't react to the room filling up with smoke, um, most people will just go along with it. They'll just go down in a blaze of glory because they don't want to be the person who looks weird. Um, that one's not so bad. I think some of these are only uh, unethical because they, <laughs> if you really want to get an honest reaction to people, you don't tell them that they are the subject of an experiment while you're doing an experiment on them. This other one is, uh, what do we got here? This is the, the Milgram Experience, Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram... What is this? Oh, I think this is the one where you can make people shock other people, you've probably heard about this, right? If if you go, hey, you're when that guy fucks up, shock him, and you go, I don't want to shock him, and then you go, no, do it. And you go, oh, you make a good point, okay? And then you lie about how much voltage is in the shock that you're giving, and so the person who is doing the shocking is led to believe that they are actually <laughs> delivering like a a near lethal amount of electricity to a stranger because they got some like random question wrong on a taste on a test and uh they'll just go ahead and do it because once again nobody wants to be the uh the stick in the mud nobody wants to be 
the person who's, uh, you know, pulling down the crowd being the downer. They'd rather just murder strangers with electricity. Next up, uh, Harlow's monkey experiments. You had to guess when we started doing this that monkeys were going to become involved at some point. Uh, If there's one thing unethical scientists like more than torturing human beings and children, it absolutely has to be monkeys. So you might be familiar with this. I feel like there was like a parody of this at some point on The Simpsons. In 1950, Harry Harlow of the University of Wisconsin wanted to test the way that infant dependency works, and he figured he could learn something about how human beings relate to um, parental love and affection by completely fucking with uh, a rhesus monkey. Once again, as I said at the top, I think the point here, you probably could have guessed what was going to happen without torturing a poor monkey, but torture a monkey they did. They made two monkey mommies. There was cloth mother and there was wire mother. Cloth mother was soft, made of cloth. Wire monkey mother was made of wires and was hideous but wire monkey gave food to the baby rhesus so they it became dependent on the wire monkey for sustenance but then they made wire mommy get mean i'm not exactly sure what they did to make an inanimate object get mean but um based on what we know about science from what i've been talking about for the last 10 minutes I bet they pulled something out of their hats, and they get very creative when it comes down to torture and monkeys. And uh, Wire Monkey would be so mean to the rhesus monkey that the rhesus monkey would go to Cloth Mommy just to get away from Wire Mommy, even though Wire Mommy was the only way he could get food, which proved... I mean, I really don't know, but I do know that this guy, um, let's see, his experiments ceased in the ni- in 1985 due to new rules against the mistreatment of animals. So he did accomplish something productive for science. They made people like him stop doing science. What else do we have here? And there's a dog torture. I don't have time to get into every one of these. Um, let's see. Some kids at summer camp did not know that their counselors were actually psychological resources. Uh, kept creating problems for him. Oh, okay. This is this is not that bad. This is just some kids who, as I say, did not know that they were test subjects. But I think they got a halfway decent summer camp out of it. I'm sure some of them got some hickeys to show for that. Oh, here we go. The monster study. This one is, as its name would imply. Fucking monstrous at the University of Iowa in 1939, a guy called Wendell Johnson got his hands on 22 orphans, orphans, 12 of which were stutterers. And what he did is he treated all of them, stutterers and non-stutterers alike, as stutterers. And um, what he was trying to do, because orphans you know, had even less rights then than they do now, was to see if you could call a kid a stutterer often enough to make him a stutterer. Why? A stutterer. Why? Because of science, of course. Always the answer here, science. Um, the good news is that uh, Wendell Johnson's monster study proved definitively that you can't make someone a stutterer just by calling them a stutterer. What they also proved, unfortunately, is that you can give somebody the exact same self-esteem problems as a stutterer has because of stuttering 
just by calling someone a stutterer. Uh, that's not the end of this list. I could go on. There's some guy who is still performing science today despite his Stanford prison experiment. Let your imagination run wild with that. But I got to go. This is fun. I've been meaning to talk to uh, to you all one-on-one, and uh, I think I might do some more of this moving forward. But for now, I'm going to leave you. Thanks for listening. Next week, I promise to have guests for the whole show. Everybody check out Neil Strauss and all of his various endeavors, most prominently his podcast. I will see you next time here on The Tully Show.